Good morning. How are you guys doing? Okay, awesome. Week before, uh, week after Easter, I'm excited to be here. And, and we launched this new series today uh, called Chosen One, uh, The Women in the Bible. Uh, in this, for the next six weeks, what we're talking about uh, is various women in the scriptures that have made a huge difference uh, for the impact of the kingdom of God. Uh, and I would say that it would be foolish for us uh, to ignore many of these women that we will be speaking about. Uh, and so I am personally super excited uh, to kick off this series. Uh, and, and this morning, as Shelby uh, read out loud, we'll be talking about these two women named Shifra and Pua. I'm sure you've uh, all heard about Shifra and Pua. Uh, no, you probably haven't, and that's okay. And, and I'm so glad that this morning we get to talk about uh, the courageous actions of these two women, of these two midwives, uh, that really unfolded the story uh, of God. Uh, and so let me just pray real quick, and then we'll get started. God, thank you so much that we get to hear from you this morning through these incredible women that you have called, that you have created, that you have commissioned to reveal who you are even more and more to us. And we thank you so much for that revelation and how it impacts our lives. God, be with those that are here. Give us ears and our eyes and, and our hearts to listen and to receive. God, be with the many families that are out of town on spring break. May you give them rest uh, and protection in their, in their travels. Uh, and we just, we, we thank you for who you are. Uh, in your name we pray, amen, amen. So when we talk about uh, this new series about women and women in ministry uh, and what women's roles, quote unquote, are in the church, this actually becomes very personal to me. Uh, because for those of you that have been around the church for a long time, you'll, you'll kind of understand what I mean when I say this, uh, is that I grew up in a very Southern Baptist church, a very Baptist uh, denomination, uh, where it was very conservative. And traditional in the way that we worship and the way that we view the scriptures. And don't get me wrong, I'm so thankful for the experience that I've had. But particularly when it came around leadership, particularly when it came around the men and women's roles, quote unquote, in the church, again, was on the very conservative, traditional side. Uh, and it wasn't really until I went to seminary uh, where I, it forced me to unpack uh, what this meant. Uh, so I, I live in this tension of, of this traditional Southern Baptist upbringing where there were specific, again, quote-unquote, roles of women and men in the church. And now I encounter uh, different doctrines and theologies uh, that talk about, well, you know what, that's one perspective. Another perspective, uh, even though there's perspectives all across the board, is that uh, men and women don't function by gender, but by calling. And so, uh, and some of you guys might be thinking, what are you talking about? I know that there's people that have never really been to church before that don't really understand some of the discussions that are happening kind of inside the church, but I believe that if we're going to have an actual honest conversation about the church's part when it comes to oppression, really, in women in, in the church leadership, we have to name it. And, and part of naming it requires what has been happening in the church. Uh, and so typically there's two uh, main perspectives when it comes to uh, women and, and men and their roles in the church. Uh, and I'm going to use kind of 
big-ish words here. One word is complementarianism. Uh, and on the other side is this word egalitarianism. Uh, and what complementarianism says, especially or particularly around the church, is that men and women, by their genders, have different roles in the church. And traditionally speaking, and this is a tradition that I grew up with, is that women were uh, not uh, allowed to, to teach or to preach, especially over men. And so many of us have been around the church. You've probably heard that before. So we would call that complementarianism. And then on the far other side of it is this word egalitarianism, uh, which is saying that God, by God's divine nature, who knows how, calls people by their giftedness, by their passions, by who they are and not by gender. And again, it wasn't until I entered into seminary where I had to study the scriptures and then finally wrestle with what I truly believed. And even going into my first year, I had this tension because I still landed here. I'll be really honest with you guys. I landed here because that was my upbringing. That's what I was used to. That's what I was taught. That's what I was brought up with. And yet I had this tension where even though I believed this, I was meeting men and women that were incredible and powerful teachers and leaders and supervisors and all these things. And so here I was in this tension. And some of you guys might be in this tension today. And my job here isn't to persuade you one way or another uh, or to have you subscribe to the same doctrine uh, that I agree or, or that I subscribe to. My desire, my hope throughout these next several weeks is that we'll truly wrestle with the scriptures, A, and uh, look at these women that have so uh, historically been neglected because it's because of them that God's revelations have, has been unfolded. And if we look at these stories, and I talked about with, this with Ashley, one of our staff members, is uh, the, the women that we will be talking about in the next six weeks uh, are names probably that many of us have not heard of or read about or even paid attention to. But yet it, it, it was the, these women that we will be talking about that actually made the difference for the impact on the kingdom. And I love what one of my favorite theologians, his name is Jurgen Moltmann, he says, uh, he, says about, he says about this about Easter. He says, we know of the resurrection because we had women preachers. I mean, he's being a little bit tongue-in-cheek here, but he says, we know of the resurrection because we had women preachers. If you know the story about the resurrection, it, it was the women that were there that told people about the resurrection, and so again, my goal in the next six weeks isn't to persuade you or convince you or tell you what to believe, but it's to say, let's look at the people, especially these women that God used to transform our entire world and our lives ultimately. And again, this morning we dig into the story of two Hebrew midwives, oftentimes overlooked, even by myself, myself included, overshadowed pushed away, ignored. Something that I feel like hasn't changed much here several thousands of years later. Even the sacred Jewish text is called the Talmud. Uh, the Talmud says this, the Talmud gives credit to Shifra and Pua for the rescue of the Israelites in Egypt 
to Canaan. And if I told you uh, or asked you <coughs> the question, who rescued the, the, the Jewish people from slavery, from captivity, from Egypt to Canaan, the promised land, if you're even a least bit familiar with scripture or you've seen the movie, uh, The Prince of Egypt, uh, you would say his name is Moses. And not to take or diminish the work of Moses, because he did wonderful works. He is a man of God who did incredible things and was obedient and did what God has called him to do. But yet we ignore these two women. We'll look into the story. If it weren't for these two women, that story would have never happened. And even the Jewish historical ancient scholars believed that and knew that. And it's time for us to listen. And so for, order, for us to understand the verses that we read about Shifra and, and Pua as midwives and their roles uh, in helping God's story unfold, uh, it's important for us to understand the context, the backdrop of which this story happened. Towards the end of Genesis, there was a man named Joseph. Again, I don't expect everyone to know this, but let me give you a little bit of a synopsis here. There was a man named Joseph who was betrayed by his own brothers out of jealousy. And Joseph was sold, out of that jealousy, Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt. So can you imagine how Joseph must have felt? By his own flesh and blood, by his own brothers, he was sold into slavery because of their jealousy towards him. I mean, talk about drama because it didn't end there. While Joseph was in Egypt, uh, he was accused, even though this didn't happen according to the scriptures, he was accused of having an affair uh, with one of the officials' wives. And because of that accusation, Joseph went to prison. So the story keeps getting worse and worse for Joseph, and yet there was a little bit of a plot twist. In these years of just hardship and anguish and and, uh, downcast, while he was in prison, uh, he found favor uh, in the the eyes of Pharaoh, the king uh, at the time. And the plot twist is this, that though Joseph went in as a slave, then he was arrested, he actually became a king, it says, ruler over the very place he was a prisoner of. And so here's Joseph. Uh, he was in Egypt uh, as a Hebrew and being a king over all the people that he was at once a slave to. And where the story picks up is that during this time, while Joseph was in Egypt, there was a famine going on in Canaan, where Joseph's family lived and the rest of the Jews. And so what happens is Joseph asks the king, Pharaoh at the time, and says, hey, there's a famine in my homeland. Is it okay if my family come to Egypt and settle here? Because otherwise they will die. They will go hungry. Uh, they will thirst. They don't have sustenance. Can they come? And Pharaoh says at the time, yes. The Pharaoh says, you are the ruler. You're the king. Uh, your, your mother, your father, your family can come. And what's incredible is that in Genesis 37 says, not only can they come to Egypt, but they can come and have the best land that we have. And it actually, Genesis 37, we'll read this in a moment, it uses the word aliens, foreigners, in other words, foreigners or immigrants. Your family can come as aliens, as foreigners, as immigrants, and you would reside and have the best land. And so that was the end of Genesis. About 450 years have passed, and here we come in Exodus chapter 1. 
where the thing that we're missing is that what we have to understand is within those 400 years, uh, not only did Joseph and his family come and settle in Egypt, uh, but because of the famine, because of the lack of resources, many of the Israelites moved down into Egypt and settled and became powerful and had children. And the Israelite, the Jewish community grew and grew and grew in Egypt. And at this time, as you can imagine, 450 years later, there was a new king, a new pharaoh, a different pharaoh, obviously, after 450 years later, that didn't like this idea of the Jewish nation growing in his kingdom. In Egypt, and so in order for uh, the, the 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 Pharaoh, the king, to do something, he ordered, as we read this morning, uh, something to happen. He went to these midwives, uh, Shifra and Pua, and said, "When these Hebrew women have babies, I want you to kill every male." According to the Pharaoh's mind, uh, that would eliminate the the growth and the population of the Jewish people. In his land. What you have to acknowledge is that there was a sense of genocide that this Pharaoh was promoting, doing. There was a sense uh, of life being one life better than the other. When we see historically in the whole narrative of, of Genesis that God is the creator of life. And not only is God the creator of life, God created of all life. And because of that, what, uh, what we see through these courageous women is that all life is precious. And it's interesting that God would use midwives to change the history of the world. But actually, when we look further into what midwives did in this ancient culture, it's actually not a surprise at all. Not at all. The midwives were in charge of bringing in life. See, you have to understand that during this time, there, wasn't, there weren't separate doctors, there weren't nurses, there weren't anesthesiologists. It, it was the midwives that actually delivered the babies. It was their responsibility, high responsibility, and they understood that, that it was in their hands that they would bring life into the world. And not only did they understand that it was physically their responsibility to bring life into the world, but it was a divine and sacred calling. It was a holy and it was it was very holy and spiritual in nature. See, when it says in verse sixteen that there was a birth stool, this Hebrew word for birth stool is ovnaim, and ovnaim literally means two stones. And what was happening was that. These midwives would have two stones next to the women in labor because these stones represented a connection with God. See, what they understood is that as they were delivering a baby, it was a divine and spiritual and sacred work. uh, And it was with God and only with God and only through God and only being connected to God were they able to deliver and bring life into this world. This was a holy job. And it was holy because uh, Shifra and Pua understood their responsibility of bringing life that God created into the world. And because God created life, every life 
is importance. See, again, earlier within Joseph's story with the king, uh, he said, he said, can my family come down? And the king, the former king said, yes, because their lives are important. And not only because their lives are important can they come down, but again, they can come down and they can have the best land, give them the best spaces, give them the best foods as you can find. That's Genesis 47, verse 4 through 6. God is a creator of life. And we see this unfolding all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, whether they're widows, orphans, homeless, refugees, children, criminals. What we see is that every one of those people, their lives were created by God, therefore their lives are important. And that was the, what we learned from the courage from uh, Shifra and Pua in their actions. I mean, what does that mean for us today? Same thing. There are lives that we think are more important than others, and what God is saying through Shifra and Pua is saying, no, that is not true. I'm the giver of all life. Every single person living and breathing and walking is because I created them. Therefore, they are important no matter what. And oftentimes, we forget that. I mean, think about the orphans, again, the refugees, the immigrants, the homeless. <clears throat> I remember uh, several months ago, I was so convicted of this, where, uh, you know, you're walking around downtown Seattle, uh, and oftentimes there's people asking for money, homeless people, and, uh, and I remember I was, I was so heartbroken over this, where someone asked me for money, and, and I just walked right past them, and I said, no, I don't have any, and I just walked right past them. I didn't even look them in the eye. I didn't even offer food. I didn't do anything. I didn't even sit and talk to them. I didn't give them my name. I didn't give them a second, and I just walked right past them, and I said, nope, and I just kept on walking. And, and then I thought to myself when I went home, <clears throat> in what world is that Okay. And maybe you've done this too, and I'll be the first one to admit I've done this several times uh, until God has revealed to me that that was wrong. What I did, without even looking that person in the eye, is to take away any type of personhood that he might have. Take away any dignity that he may have. He was no longer essentially a life. And what God is saying, all life matters, even that man that was asking you for money. How dare you, Prentice, just walk right past without even looking him in the eye. And I walked right past them. And in what world, in what relationships in our lives, is that acceptable? Is that okay? None. We would never do that. And the invitation from these two midwives, these two midwives that many of us have never heard before, is to view every life as a life that was created by God. And because of that, that life matters. That life is precious. That life is important. Whether it's people you know, 
whether it's people you don't know. Maybe it's people that you can't even forgive. They were created by God. People of different uh, political affiliations, guess what? They were created by God. People of different gender, guess what? They were created by God. People of different sexual orientation, they were created by God. People of different race, they were created by God. People of different religions, they were created by God. And because of that, their life matters. And for some reason, we forget that. I get this email uh, about an elementary school where they just got a notification. This was just last week. They have this notification saying, uh, families, I just want to warn you uh, that in Europe right now, um, there's this day called Punish a Muslim Day. And I just want to tell you, families, there was an email saying we're, we're going to have extra security and, and extra people uh, just to caution. And I thought to myself, as I was preparing this, how, how many people in Europe or here or whatever it is actually endorse this? And, and I would say, <clears throat> for us, even as followers of Christ, especially as followers of Jesus, that, again, it doesn't matter what religion people are. It doesn't matter what race. It doesn't matter social economics. Because they were created by God, we should call this, this email that I got, as evil, as injustice. Because we view humanity, all humanity, as life that was created by God. And why do we forget that? Who are the people in your lives that we forget uh, that are human? Again, maybe it's people that you do know. Maybe it's people that you can't stand. Maybe it's the person at work that annoys you or bothers you. Who are these people? And my challenge to you and my challenge to myself is this, is to view them in the lens of God's created ones just like I was, just like you were. And because of that, we love. We love. Even James chapter 2 talks about not showing favoritism especially due to socioeconomics. God is a creator of life. <clears throat> and therefore, all life matters, it's precious, and we should love. And what we see through Shifra and Pua is that not only is all life created by God, uh, but the second thing that we learn is that God's laws are greater than human laws. God's laws are greater than human laws. See, what we understand about Pharaoh is that Pharaoh wasn't his name. Pharaoh was a title. Uh, And another word for Pharaoh would be like ruler or king. And it was very political. It was a very uh, governmental title. And what we see in the verses that we read in verse 15 and 16 uh, is that Shifra and Pua had a decision to make. There was two laws that they had to be obedient to that contradicted one another. Is it going to be the, the law of the land where the ruler, Pharaoh, says, kill the firstborn males? Or would it be the law that they believe the law of God? 
to, to understand that this, these lives matter. And obviously what we see is that they went this direction and said, you know what? All life is created by God. Therefore, to, to kill would be being disobedient to the law that God has called them to live by. And so what they did was they were uh, uh, blatantly disobedient to the king. Essentially, they broke the law to obey a higher law. And, and the consequence during this time for disobeying Pharaoh, the king, was not just imprisonment, but was, would be death. And so what Shifra and Pua did in their courageousness is saying, even though it's going to cost me my life, I know what's important. I know the God that I adhere to. I know where my allegiance is. It's not to a political affiliation. It's not to even a theological conviction. It's not to a set of people group. It's not to my job. It's not even to my relationships. It's to God. In God's laws. God's laws, what Shifra and Pua is saying, is greater than human laws. Now, here's what I'm not saying. <clears throat> I'm not encouraging us uh, or promoting anarchy by any means. Romans chapter 13 talks about us being obedient to the laws of the land. Yes, that is true. And, and to be obedient and, and to be faithful to the laws that were created before us. But in, in 13.8... It says, not at the expense of being unloving. Not at the expense of hurting people. Marginalizing people, oppressing people, dehumanizing people. Because if it hurts in that manner, that is not of God. Because what we have to understand is the arc of hope. The arc of hope always bends Towards justice. The Ark of Hope always bends towards justice and love and forgiveness and peace. And if it's not, we have to ask ourselves, is this of God? And if it's not, what do we do? Last week, uh, we honored, as a country, as a world, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., where it had been 50 years since his assassination. I mean, he was an example uh, of being disobedient to the public laws in order to love and to promote a greater law, which is the law of God. To abolish racism, to fight for civil rights, to fight for those that are marginalized, that are voiceless, that are pushed to the side. And guess what? As 50 years ago, he was assassinated for. He gave, literally, he gave his life because he understood that there was a greater law. Think of people like not only Martin Luther King Jr., but even Rosa Parks. Defied the law, did not get up. And we can think of many, many others. I mean, could you imagine, could you imagine if Shifra and Pua was actually obedient not to the law of God and what God had said, but the law of Pharaoh? I mean, essentially, we wouldn't have Moses. Moses would have been killed. The forefather, the father of our Christian religion would, would potentially not even be around. 
Maybe God would have had other plans, and I don't doubt that, but, but there were significant parts of God's revealing of God's story and God's movement in the world. Shifra and Pua's invitation is for us to be courageous and to speak out and to act on behalf of God's justice, God's love, God's people. The unfortunate part is we're so afraid of that. <clears throat> Myself included. We live in a culture where we just absolutely hate confrontation. We hate it. See, the funny thing is we don't mind being activists on Facebook or on social media, but we have a hard time being activists and advocates of people face-to-face. It's easy for us to click like. It's easy for us to share a post. It's easy for us to, to you know, make a statement on social media. A lot of us do it. I do it myself. But the invitation is to go further, to be courageous. Even the world says that's dumb or, that's, or don't do that. Even when, when people around you say, why are you doing that? We stand up and we say, because this is the calling on our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. God's laws are greater than human laws. And Shifra and Pua invites us to have courage to pursue God's laws, who God is, God's nature in our relationships, within the people around us, in our environments, wherever it is. And we have to ask ourselves, well, how did this happen? What did Shifra and Pua do? And it said, because they feared God. They feared God. This Hebrew word for fear is yarit. And it doesn't mean this sense of being afraid or scared of God. It's this whole idea of fear being uh, respect or to follow or to honor And if we, if we asked Shifra and Pua, well, how did you do this? How did, how did you become so courageous and so strong uh, that you would follow not the laws of Pharaoh, but of God in order to save these lives that were created by God? And the response was, and is even today, would be uh, because we feared God. We didn't fear what people might have to say. We didn't even fear our lives. We can even see the story of MLK Jr. We can see the story of Rosa Parks. I don't care if I get arrested. He says, I don't care if I get killed because the only person I fear, honor, respect, want to follow are not people, but it's God. It's God. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says, if you confess, and we've heard this many times if you've been around the church, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I know that we, we see these verses very esoteric, like, all right, then I'll be saved as long as I say, Jesus, you're my Lord, uh, which is true. There's a confession of our faith that, that is important. Uh, but we have, what we have to understand in the first century is that just like these ancient Israelite times, uh, when they had Pharaoh as ruler, the New Testament also had their ruler, a political figure named Caesar. In the Old Testament, it was Pharaoh. In the New Testament, in the first century, uh, it was, it was uh, Caesar, and what they understood in the first century is that not only was Caesar their God, but Caesar was actually 
their political leader, their king, their ruler. And, and so we use this word Lord as if it is like Jesus' like other name, uh, but it's a title that's given to Jesus, just like a title that was given to even Caesar. In this first century times, Caesar was named Lord, the Greek word Kyrios, the one we follow. And, and when in Romans, Paul says, hey, guess what? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. This was a very subversive and very radical statement. What Paul is saying is that, hey, guess what? What we're saying is that Caesar is actually not Lord. It's actually Jesus. And believing and knowing and understanding that Jesus is the one that we follow, not Caesar, back here, not Pharaoh, then you will be saved. And so the question is, who is your Lord? Who will you choose to follow? And if you're a follower of Jesus, the answer is easy, right? The answer is Jesus. Jesus is our Lord. Not not Pharaoh, obviously. Not Caesar. Not the government. Not whoever it is, not my family member, not my relationships, it's Jesus. It's, for a lot of us, it's easy for us to say that, but if we really <coughs> do, a, do a kind of inventory of our lives, is that true? Is, Caesar, is Jesus really your curios, the one that you follow? Who is your Lord? Is it money? Is it upward mobility? Is it relationships? Is it your reputation? Is it your status? And being post-Easter, we, we have this opportunity to reflect on the cross of Jesus. Is Jesus, his life, his teaching, his death, and his resurrection, is that who we follow? Is that who we call Lord? Or is it something or somebody else? And it's a real question that we need to ask ourselves even today. And it's a question and a challenge that we see from Shifra and Pua. <coughs> These two names that we've barely heard of. Barely heard of. Maybe it's just me, but I've <coughs> barely heard of these names. <coughs> and yet, it's within these two names that God uses in mighty and powerful name, uh, ways to tell the world, to tell us. The message that life is all created by God. Therefore, we need to love and to walk alongside all life. Because it all matters. Even at the expense uh, of being perhaps disobedient, not only just to the laws of the land, but the laws of society to the laws of, of culture, of what's unpopular, are you willing to go there? Fortunately, we live in a world where, or we live in a society, in a Western society, where you wouldn't necessarily uh, have to be concerned about physical harm or even death because of your convictions. And yet, we're so afraid to live those out. Because then the question begs, who is your Lord? Who is the one that you actually follow? I'm going to ask a worship team back up as we we reflect, as we take a self-inventory 
Are there people in your lives that you, I'm just going to say this, that you see as less than human? I know that sounds harsh. And right away from the outskirts, we would say, absolutely not. But really, are there? Yeah. I know perhaps I do. I'll be the first one to confess that. And I'll be the first one to confess, to say, Jesus, break down that wall. Help me to see people the way that you see people as created to be image bearers of God. So as we enter in this time of response, maybe it's through prayer, maybe it's through just closing our eyes, maybe it's through singing when we start singing. But maybe this is a time to to really seek God out. Say, God, who are those people? (coughs) In addition, uh, because I really believe that God will reveal those names to you, those people to you, maybe the next step is, God, will you forgive me? God, will you forgive me? Because we do need forgiveness from that. Maybe it's a reality check of who our curious is. Who's your Lord? Is it the Lord of our culture? Lord of what people say? Lord of what we see on TV? Who do you choose to follow? God, thank you so much for women like Shifra and Pua, names that we have barely heard of, yet has changed the world. God, isn't that funny? That's the way you work. In this upside-down kingdom, that's the way you work. And, And God, may we not forget that. May we not miss that. And as we study and learn about the women that you have used to change this world, May we have a change within ourselves because of that. We thank you for the women that that we will be learning about, the ones oftentimes ignored. God, forgive us for that, that we still live that out today. we as a a society, as a world, give life, bring life, may we receive life from you and bring that on to others, and we thank you for what you're doing. In your name we pray, amen. Let's continue in worship.